Well, we can turn back to the chapter we read, um, Jonah chapter 3. And in this chapter, we can see how uh, Jonah was restored um, to service. We don't know how long, time-wise, there is between the last verse of chapter 2 and the first verse of chapter 3. It is possible that um, Jonah, uh, after he had arrived back in Israel, after his unusual journey, um, went up to the temple because that's what he said he would do. He says that in chapter 2, that he would um, uh, go to walk to the temple and offer a sacrifice to God. The only place he could offer one was in the temple. So um, he may have gone up there, and that, may taken, that would have taken him a while. And... It may have been while he was doing that that uh, he suddenly found himself restored to service. Who knows? We're not told. Or maybe he needed some time to process things. After all, if we had had the experience of Jonah, we wouldn't necessarily be ready just to jump back into our previous way of living, would we? However, um, marvelous is his prayer uh, recorded there in chapter 2. It is the case, isn't it, that traumatic events leave their mark. And in some way or other, uh, they have to be processed. What was God saying to me in the fish Jonah might want to assess? Does he still want me to serve him? Because uh, there's no real mention of that in chapter 2, is there? Does God still want me to serve him? After all, I've been a rebellious prophet and uh, not just rebellious, but defiant. I mean, it's possible for somebody to say, um, I'm not going to do it, whatever God asks us to do. I'm not going to do it, but just to remain where they are. But it's also possible for them to say, I'm not going to do it, and then to make efforts to make sure they could never do it. And of course, that's what Jonah tried, wasn't it? He wanted to go as far away as possible. I mean, going to Tarshish, as far in Jonah's day, was going to the edge of the world. They had no idea that across the ocean there was a huge continent. For them, they got to the edge of the Mediterranean, and just beyond that, well... It's the unknown world. 
but to go to Tarshish, which is modern-day Spain, uh, was just to go as far away from God as you could possibly go. And that tells us something of the extent of, um, of Jonah's defiance. He's going in the exact opposite direction. Nineveh was to the east. Jonah went to the west. And the thought must have crossed his mind. It's God. What's God's plans for me? I'm a prophet, or I used to be a prophet. Am I now no longer one? And maybe he had to process all that. And as he was thinking about it, somehow the thought arose in his heart that he was still to be a prophet. Because we are told there in verse 1 that the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Somewhere in his post-experience in the great fish, God recalled him to his service. So I'd like to think a bit about him, him being recalled and, and then something about his restoration. And then what he went and taught in Nineveh. And then what the result was. And then the most amazing reversal ever made by God. And then some lessons from this. So um, Jonah is recalled to service. Now, if we had um, been aware of Jonah, how would we have reacted to him? Because uh, being, being a prophet, he's obviously a public figure. And we're told in Second Kings that he did make predictions uh, that were um, very informative as far as the king of Israel was concerned. And that, and that was one of the roles of a prophet. He would, um, <clears throat> he would tell the, the, the king, he was a kind of court advisor, and he would make announcements. And, and we're told that in Second Kings that um, Jonah predicted during the reign of Jeroboam II that the borders of Israel would be very extensive. And anybody that um, would be aware of that would know that Jonah's words have come true. So he, he's a public figure, a prophet, and what way does God restore him? To what level is he recovered? Is he just going to be... Uh, an ordinary person? Well, the answer, of course, is that we know that God restored him to his, recalled him to his role. And I, I suppose uh, we can see in that an example of what God said through Isaiah, that somebody returns to the Lord, he will abundantly pardon. Jonah, the defiant sinner, 
is given a marvelous um, recovery by God, isn't he? There's almost a sense, although it's not the real sense, but there's almost a sense in which the, the period in the fish never happened. Isn't there? There's Jonah called to Nineveh uh, the first time and he heads off into the Mediterranean. And chapters 1 and chapters 2 describe Jonah's demise, them descent, I should say. But verse 1 of chapter 3, well, he's almost back to where he was, isn't he? Wherever this call came to him the second time, he just arise, go to Nineveh. The plan of God for him hasn't changed, has it? God abundantly pardons. Jonah, we might say, just imagine he's on rung number six of a ten-rung ladder. He doesn't come back in at rung number one. He's given this um, position in God, God's great mercy. Of course, in a certain sense, that's true of all of us if we're Christians. I mean, if we backslide, or should I say, uh, when we backslide, where do we come back in? I mean, it's, it's a serious question. Where do we come back in? David, you know what he did in his backsliding? Where did he come back in? Jacob. Where did he come back in? Peter. Where did he come back? God is gracious. It's a reminder in a certain sense. There's no second class citizens in his kingdom. Repentance is a spiritual grace. Repentance is not Graveling. Repentance is a spiritual activity. It's a response that pleases God greatly. Indeed, it's one of the functions why Jesus has been exalted to give repentance. And not just repentance on day one. But repentance on day a thousand and one, or whenever it has to be done. I suspect that most Christians backslide every day.
and have to be restored. And we don't have to be going to the extremes that Jonah went to. If we thought about ourselves yesterday or any day, did we ask ourselves, how devoted was I to God this morning? And I'm sure the answer is that for many of us, well, there were times when we were not what we should be. And the path of return is the same for us as it was for Jonah. Or you can put it the other way around. It was the same for Jonah as it is for us. Jonah, well, we could say his calling was to go to Nineveh. You know, and there's a real sense where it's not possible to escape a divine call. Many Christians have tried to escape it. I mean, they've, they've sensed God calling them to do something. And they've tried every excuse in the game to avoid it. And um, usually what happens is that God makes life difficult. Until they actually go and do what God is wanting them to do. Many a person has fought against the call to be a missionary and got no peace until they did it. And the same goes for many other ways in church life, whether ministers or other roles that people play, like elders and deacons. If God is calling someone to do something, it's not just wrong to fight it. It's foolish. Because God will have his means of bringing about what he wants them to do. As Jonah here found. So it's a real sense in which it's impossible to escape a divine call. God just keeps at it. And Jonah here, well, he finds that is the case. And of course, as we've been thinking about, I mean, Jonah's uh, refusal was, was um, different. He's not a novice, is he? We can understand how somebody may be sitting in a sermon somewhere and they sense that God is speaking to him, them, or they're reading a book or reading the Bible or just find their hearts drawn in a certain direction. And we imagine that they're a bit skeptical about the fact that God could be speaking to them. 
I suppose in a certain sense we'd expect someone when the first time that idea crosses their mind uh, that they would wonder if it is true or not. But Jonah's not like that, is he? As we mentioned earlier, he's a, he's a prophet. And a successful prophet, if we regard by success the fact that his words became true. He's a bit like uh, Thomas, isn't he? Thomas, the uh, apostle. Defiant. We call Thomas Doubting Thomas. But really when we think about Thomas's words, they weren't words of doubt, were they? Unless, when, he, when the other disciples said to him on that resurrection Sunday, we have seen the Lord. I mean, ten people saying to him, Ten of his friends saying to him, we have seen the Lord. Plus all the others who may have been in the room at that time. And he just says, I will not believe it. And unless, and of course when he's saying this, he's, he is certain it's, it's impossible to happen. Unless I put my hands, my finger into his marks in his hand, and thrust. That's a horrible word. And thrust my hand into his side. I will not believe. Of course, we know what happened to Thomas when he appeared, Jesus appeared to him a week later, and Thomas said, My Lord and my God. And he was restored to his role as an apostle and so on. But Jonah's a bit like that, isn't he? His defiance was strong. But when he repented, came to his senses, when God recalled him, well, he's a bit like Thomas too, isn't he? And it's good for us to know that. Who is our God? God of mercy, God of grace, the God who recalls. And it's a reminder to us that God has called us to do something that's never too late. He's recalled his second message that he's to give is, <clears throat> is more stark than the first one. Uh, the first one is um, that um, he just goes to, we're told that in verse 2 of chapter uh, 1, he's, he's told, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And that's kind of, I suppose, he was to go there and just say, God's against you. But the message he's got the second time is, um, 
Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's much starker, isn't it? There's no time limit in verse 2 of chapter 1. It's just that he goes there and says, God's against you. And, well, the people could react to that. But he goes the second time with this starker message, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Wonder why it's starker. What is the heavenly motive for giving us much starker message? Well, we don't know how long Jonah has been away from fulfilling his call. But one thing that was going on in Nineveh during all that time was that they were practicing their sins. And their sins were ascending to heaven. And God, you know, God tolerates sinful practices for a certain time. Nineveh has been just doing what the people of Nineveh did. All their paganism, and, and it's also mentioned there in, by, in their confession, down in verse 8 of chapter 3, their violent, their violence. They were a cruel people. And, you know, there are limits, with, there are limits as to what God will allow. And somewhere between Jonah's first call and Jonah's second call, somewhere between them, the the date of no more toleration had drawn very near. It is possible that in verse 2 of chapter 1, there's God's first word to Nineveh. That's possible. But what is certain is that in verse uh, 4 of chapter 3 is God's last word to Nineveh. They, are, they were near the edge. They had crossed the line, as it were. God's toleration had reached as much as he was going to bear. And of course, that's a warning to us, isn't it? There's no society that's lasted forever. And all the societies that in the past that seemed so powerful 
and just proceeded along on their way. They've all gone. Nineveh has gone because this revival that happened here within a century had been forgotten about. But all the empires of the ancient world all we see now is the ruins of their buildings. And it's a warning to us. Because our society can easily, can be as easily dismantled if God chooses to do so. But anyway, God in his mercy told Nineveh something he hasn't told us. He told Nineveh how much time they had. And within them of 40 days or five or so, five or six weeks, they're going to be destroyed. I wonder what kind of sinner is suitable for that kind of message. What kind of preacher should you send to big sinners? Well, how about sending a big sinner? I mean, the first time he was asked to go to Nineveh, but didn't go, Jonah was a sinner saved by God's grace. <clears throat> but the uh, Second time, <clears throat> the second call he got, and as he made his way, this time to Nineveh, when he went as a big sinner, didn't he? He went as a, a big sinner restored by God's grace. It's a very different Jonah that goes in response to the second call. I mean, the the seeds of rebellion may have been in his heart prior to the first call, but he didn't know they were there, did he? Because sometimes the seeds of rebellion are not seen until the moment arises, or the moment arrives. Jonah discovered something about himself that he didn't know. Somebody has said to Jonah before verse 1 of chapter 1, what do you think of the will of God, Jonah? Well, he could have given his testimony that it's great to serve God. But what would he have said if we asked him the same question at the beginning of chapter 3? now that he had found out something about his own heart. Well, he's a different man that goes, isn't he? God sent a big sinner to deal with big sinners. I mean, the one thing Jonah could say to the people of Nineveh, if they asked him, he could say to them, I know the mercy of God 
in a way that no one else does. And who was number one sinner in Nineveh after Jonah arrived? Well, given when we say that if we sin against knowledge, it's more heinous, then the number one sinner was Jonah. Forgiven, recalled, but there he is, a different man, but a man aware of, surely aware of the fact that in a human heart, even in the hearts of those that God uses, there is sin. So that's him recalled. But now that he's restored, <clears throat> what would he have learned? Well, three things very briefly. Surely he would know about the consequences of disobedience. I mean, God's commands are never merely advice. God doesn't say to anyone, I think you should do this. His commands are, well, that's what they are, commands. And disobedience always has its consequences. And in Jonah's case, well, there was consequences on himself and there was consequences for others. Why did these sailors in chapter 1 have a bad day at sea? No doubt it wasn't the first storm they had encountered. But the reason they had it that day was because of Jonah. There was consequences for others. Even more so, there was consequences on himself. And that divine means of dealing with them has got a mixture, we could say, of punishment and restoration. I mean, I think sometimes we've got a tendency to look at Jonah and the fish and sort of say, well, this is, this is amazing. And it was amazing in the sense that it brought Jonah to repentance. But all you have to do is think about it. What is life like inside a fish? Well, of course, none of us know. But I'm quite certain none of us would want to be there. Even if afterwards we could write about it in wonderful terms. But the consequences of disobedience. Well, Jonah knew about that, didn't he? And so does anyone 
whom God tells about their disobedience. Another thing he'd have learned, of course, is God's amazing ability to answer prayer. From where can God answer prayer? Well, I suspect it never entered anyone's mind before that God could answer a prayer from inside a fish. But he can, and he did. And, I mean, Jonah should have said to himself, well, the God who answers people inside a fish, uh, sorry, a person inside a fish, could certainly answer people praying inside a city. So he should have had an awareness of God's ability to answer prayer. And is that not the way God deals with people? To show them that he's the hearer and the answerer of prayer. And the third lesson, of course, you'd have learned is the importance of immediate obedience. Because that's what happens in chapter 3, isn't it? Jonah engages in immediate obedience and heads off to Nineveh. So he's learned these three lessons of restoration. And I suspect we haven't been restored if we don't realize these three. If I still think disobedience is possible, surely I haven't been restored. The heart that is restored does what God wants. And then he reaches Nineveh. Now I'm sure there were many wonderful sights to see in Nineveh. It's a very accomplished city, one of the most advanced in the world at that time. You could go for a chariot ride along its walls because they're as wide as a modern motorway. Lots of things to do in Nineveh and great sights to see. But Jonah saw great sights, didn't he? He might have said to himself, well, I'm going to be here for three days at least. I'm going to have to go through this entire city. And and from what I know about it, nothing's going to happen. In fact, he might have said to himself, my message is good. Because since I know they won't, none of them will believe it. Um, It's only 40 days to go. But as he went through Nineveh, and what, what would be like a modern equivalent of walking through Nineveh as Jonah did? Well, how about going through the capital of Saudi Arabia or the capital of North Korea? 
You've got as much chance of seeing another believer, but you've got no chance of seeing them. And here's um, Jonah, and he's walking down one street, and then the next street, then the next street. He does it for a day. And his message, as we think about it, is actually quite ridiculous. I mean, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the most powerful nation in the world. Where is, from the point of view of the people of Nineveh, who's going to overthrow them? No one has yet done it. In fact, it's been the exact opposite. Nineveh has overthrown everybody else. So there's north, south, east, or west. There's no danger. But the strange thing is about Nineveh is that they didn't look north, south, east, or west. Instead, they looked up the way. Because despite the fact Jonah's message seems so ridiculous, we're told there in verse 5, and it doesn't say the people of Nineveh believed Jonah. It says the people of Nineveh believed God. Somehow in the, this stranger walking in with his threatening message, the people of Nineveh, on day one, believed God. And believed him to such an extent <clears throat> that Jonah didn't have to go through the rest of the city. Jonah didn't have to go up to the palace. The news got to the palace long before Jonah did. And as he started to walk through the city... If he chose to look behind him, or perhaps even just around him, he's seen people repenting. Instead of getting a hostile reception, his message of impending judgment is causing the people of Nineveh to stop whatever they're doing and to repent. The people, we could put it this way, the people of Nineveh didn't have to go into a fish in order to repent. They just heard what Jonah said. And there, there they are repenting. One after the other. It's almost like Dominoes, in a sense, isn't it? As far as you can see, it's the whole city that's affected. Not just one house in a street, but every house and every person in the house. And they're all there, just as we can see from verse 5. And they've put on, they're going to call for a fast and put on sackcloth 
And they're not doing this by royal command. The royal command comes after they've decided to do it. What an extraordinary effect. There's lots of lessons from that. The result, as we can see, is communal repentance. City repentance. A whole city of over a million people. Because they've got 120,000 children. It even extends to their property, to their animals. And they're. Why did they do this? Why did they repent? Well, we might say it's, well, God's secret operation. That's true. But God's secret operation works through rational means. So, why did they make this response that they did? Well, it's just a suggestion, but looks to me as if they believed he had the power to do it. I mean, the gods of the surrounding nations had been no threat to Nineveh. If they had chosen to go to any of their temples, there they would see in a corner somewhere the gods of the conquered peoples. But where is an object of the God of Israel? He's different. No one takes something representing him and puts it inside a pagan temple. Well, the Philistines tried it. And we know what happened to their God. So this God that Jonah is speaking about, Nineveh has never encountered him before. And they recognize somehow or other in this unusual preacher, they recognize that the message he's got is about a powerful God. And is that not what the gospel does? What's the gospel all about? It's about the God who's powerful to save. And We know God secretly works in their hearts, but they rationally, they realize that here is power. And at the same time, they would have have said to themselves, why has he told us this? Why didn't God just let the 40 days pass and then destroy them? 
Because we know that's what Jonah wanted. But why did God tell them? Why did he give them a warning? And they must have, well, anybody with enough intelligence could work out, surely he must have told us because he wants us to listen. And therefore, they repented. Just like that. It kind of puts every manual out the window, doesn't it? Every strategy for doing things. And there they are. And they prayed to God. And even as the king says there, down in verse 8, pray mightily to him. Stop in a minute. But what is it to pray mightily? Well, how does a person show their might? By putting all their energy into it. And the king, the unnamed king, he exhorts his people to call out mightily to God. They're desperate, of course, aren't they? They're serious about it. And the astonishing thing is, and the wonderful thing is, that God heard their prayer. People get themselves into all kinds of theological knots, but whether or not God can change his mind. But what we are told about him is that God relented. And uh, the word relent has got the idea of feeling. It points to God's pity. God had pity on them. And for God to have pity, well, that's God being consistent. What does God always do when someone repents? He shows pity to them. And that's what happened here. God, the God of holiness, had pity on a city of great sinners. Totally unique event. Never happened before. Never happened in Jerusalem. It never happened since. An entire city experiences God's pity. Just a couple of lessons as we conclude. An obvious one is, we don't need to despair about anywhere, do we? If God could have mercy on Nineveh, what city is beyond his 
pardon. Another lesson is, what can God do with one man? Well, one thing he can do with one man is, through his own power, convert a city. A reminder to us that it's not by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. But it is true, isn't it, that God can do a lot through one person. Even a disobedient person who repents. The third thing, of course, is what matters is the day of judgment. Because Jesus said, didn't he, that on the day of judgment, the men of Nineveh will arise and condemn the people of Capernaum because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And of course, we have to bear that word in mind when we think about and question whether or not what happened in Nineveh was genuine. Because Jesus says that on the day of judgment, the men of Nineveh will judge the men of Capernaum. It's a bit like what Paul says the saints shall judge the world. And then the last thing is, how quickly the fear of God can come. I don't know what day of the week Jonah entered Nineveh, but let's say it was Monday. How long did it take for the city to fear God? Monday. Our God can turn things round very quickly. So we should be praying for that. Shall we pray?